Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with Mitch Parker, someone who I've known for a few years. We spoke about Mitch's approach to how companies should incorporate security processes into their business. He discusses his opinion on how he believes security teams need to be more invested in the overall business goals and his approach to doing that. If you're keen to learn more about Mitch's experience, then please keep on listening. Mitch, like we said before we started recording this podcast, it has been a bit of time now since we did chat. I think we said it was three years ago. I have been following you on social media and I have seen a lot of your posts, which I'd like to get into towards the end of the podcast. But we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your history within the security space. Can you please walk our listeners through your security journey? I started off approximately 16 years ago when I started doing information assurance work at one of the military bases in the Philadelphia area where I grew up. And I worked my way up to a senior information assurance specialist. And after that contract ended in 2008, ended up taking a job as the chief information security officer at Temple Health in Philadelphia, which is an academic health system. After about eight years, I got contacted by a health system out here in Indianapolis, Indiana called IU Health and was recruited and moved myself and my family out here in September 2016, about three years ago. And since then, I've taken on a role of Chief Information Security Officer here and have worked to try and build up a really great program that meets the needs of the organization and is able to help the organization meet its mission. And so when you say build up a great program, can you elaborate a little bit more on what that looks like? To me, what that what that means is that you have excellent communication with your customers. You're able to work towards assessing risk, finding out where your risks really are, building plans to address your risks, and being able to follow through. Mm-hmm. Instead of just accepting risk, what you do is you actually work towards mitigating it. And that's where I think a lot of programs fall short is a lot of them do a good job assessing risk, but you need to actually address your risks. And it takes a lot of work to get that communicated across your organization at multiple levels and to be able to push that through to execute well enough. And to me, what that means, having an excellent program means you have an excellent team that you support that's engaged, that's able to help you build what you need to effectively communicate to leadership and the rest of the organization what they need to do, how they need to do it, and work with them to help build it instead of trying to do it all yourself. One thing that was stood out to me just when you were talking about building great program is the excellent comms with your clients. Are you able to share potentially what that looks like from a communications point of view? Absolutely. So we have an entire communications program built out. Mm-hmm. We do monthly communications to our workforce at minimum with obviously in the case of special occurrences such as some kind of attack or some type of reported an incident. We'll do extra communications that month mm-hmm. and we're continually out there speaking with our customers. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is we will go and we'll drive anywhere. We will meet with our customers in person and we'll get to know them. We'll get to understand their needs. And more importantly, we practice excellent customer service. 
I think that's really important when you talk about we deliver more communications when it does come to an incident, uh, because as you would know, there have been companies out there that have sort of said nothing, which I think, in my opinion, is the worst thing that you could possibly do because people do feel left in the lurch. Do you think by providing this excellent communication with your clients, do you believe that that's built up substantial trust because you are very transparent about potentially what's going right, but what is also going wrong? Yes, I think that I think it has. And again, one item I always like to emphasize with people is you have to be built up and trusted enough in an organization for people to call you. Mm-hmm. They're not going to call you if you, they don't know who you are. They're not going right. to call you if they don't trust you. So we work very hard and we come right out and tell people we're here to gain your trust. We're here to get you to call us. Mm-hmm. And we're also very transparent. With one other item. We know that when somebody calls us, they're not having a good day. You're going to be (laughs) calling out for a chat. No, they're calling because their identity has been stolen. They're calling because they're calling because they've had a problem with direct deposit that went to the wrong accounts. Mm -hmm. They're calling because someone impersonated their identity. Mm -hmm. And these are people that are very scared. They're very concerned. And obviously they want somebody to work with them who Mm -hmm. understands and who's not going to mock them, who's not going to insult them. And they want someone that's going to tell them what's going on and what they need to do and empower them to do so. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. I think that I hope people listening can take a bit of your advice and implement it in their own organization, whether that is you're on servicing clients or you are working internally, because it's some it's an area where I believe the security industry needs to do better to be able to build and engender that trust with their clients and their customers. So Mitch, let's jump into processes now, incorporating security into business processes specifically. Now, I know that you have great experience in doing this. Can you walk our listeners through a high level overview of how this should look in a business? The first and most important thing you have to do is you have to look at how you're going to score your risks. What are the criteria that you're looking at? So my organization is very fortunate. They brought in a consultant to do what's called risk scoring. And what they did is they put together a set of risk scores that were multiplied together, give an aggregate risk score for every identified risk. Mm-hmm. So we've done that and we have a simplified formula that we use. I'm presenting on next month at at the Cerner Health Conference in Kansas City, Missouri. But what we do is we just take the basic formula that we have, which has about eight elements in it, and we do a risk assessment. Can you describe the eight elements just to break it down for everyone? Okay, let me go bring them up really, really quickly. So what we take a look at is we take a look at it with patient safety, patient experience, effect on operating income, effect on employee engagement, effect on our brand or reputation, and what we call the contagion effect. In other words, what's the maximum area that can be affected? And then we also take a look at likelihood and velocity, Mm -hmm. i.e. how fast is this, would would the occurrence of this happen? Mm -hmm. So obviously, as you can tell, ransomware gets pretty high. Yes. And so what we'll do is we will do a risk assessment with our customers. We're actually going through this process right now. So what we do is we engage a lot of people we've identified across the workforce to help complete a HIPAA risk assessment that has a number of questions in there that are relevant for their organization and their job category. And so our current one is going to have about 250 respondents on it. And we put everything together. We score the risks 
and we rank them based upon the scoring criteria I talked about so we can identify the most critical risks. And what we'll do after that is we present those to our senior leadership and we make plans to address the top risks as part of our strategic plan for the next year. So Mm -hmm. we'll take our top risks, we'll have scores, we'll take them to our senior leadership and say, we need funding to address these top risks that we've quantitatively identified. And this is what we're asking for. This is why we're asking for it. And this is what we hope to accomplish. So we'll submit those scores to make sure that our organization understands. This is something that isn't just a pie in the sky. This comes from a number of respondents and interviews. This is how it's scored. And this is how we have to respond to address these risks. Okay. And when you're saying that these are the risks that you've done quantitatively, what sort of the response you're getting back internally in terms of going and getting the funding when you're doing this research? We've actually had very good success when we've had, when we've presented the higher scored items, because ultimately the goal of our organization is to reduce risk. Mm-hmm. And for a health system, it's to reduce risk with the patient population. So we look at this as an extension of our organization's mission. And when we present it, we talk about it in those quantitative terms, but we also talk about it in terms of patient satisfaction. We talk about it in terms of workflow. And ultimately, a lot of it comes down to brand and reputation because we don't want to be the health system that's on the six o'clock news. We want to be known as a health system that takes a very proactive approach to addressing risk. And instead of just being reactive, we take that quantitative approach. And so what I've seen with a lot of risk assessments where they fall short is they don't use that quantitative scoring because if you can show quantitatively risk Y is a hundred times more likely to happen than risk X and the effect is going to be much greater, that sticks out a lot more than just saying something's a high risk and then we should address it. Do you think that's what people are sort of showcasing when you said where a lot of people fall short, they're sort of just saying these are the risks and we've got to do something about it. They're not really sort of doing more of a in-depth analysis on why it's important, the risk to the brand and reputation to the organization. Is, it, is that correct? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Why do you think people do miss that? There's that gap there because to me, probably because I used to do this myself, I used to write all of the reporting and give it to someone to present back to the board. So maybe to me, it comes a little bit more naturally. I would think that that's quite an easy way to obtain people's buy-in because you are showing them and being very transparent about what that actually means to them. Why do you think people aren't doing that? I think the main reason is, is because they just don't know how. Because this is not something they really teach about Mm -hmm. doing the quantitative risk analysis and putting it all together and presenting it in a way that the senior leadership of an organization understands. And And you know, when, sorry, keep going. So the only thing I was going to add to that is that's something I really impress upon my team is that Mm -hmm. every day I talk to them, I said, you have to be prepared that when something happens, you have to talk to senior leadership and I need you to be ready to do so. And it comes down to having good organizational discipline around how you organize and present information to people to make sure you get those points across. And I, what I've found is that this is not really something they teach in cybersecurity programs, but rather they teach in MBA programs. Why I wanted to interrupt you before is because it's something that basically every single person I talk to on the podcast, but even offline as well, it's the same thing. Like, yes, cool. We missed the boat because no one taught us this. And 
it's the same type of questioning and the same type of problems that I read online that I hear people talking about in terms of opinion pieces around, yeah, cool, but then no one knows the language on how to engage and influence senior leadership. And I think that's a big area where I don't know if the security industry values as much because you do need to influence these people to give you money or else if they just see, I don't know, how many attacks were blocked or whatever it is, that doesn't really mean anything to them. And they don't, honestly, they don't really care. They care about, cool, what does that actually mean for the organization? How much money is it going to cost? to me and what's the risk. And I feel that a lot of practitioners are focusing a lot on the technical details, which is important, but it's not the main driving factor when you are engaging with a senior leader. I, I agree with that. I can tell you my presentations are pretty straightforward to them. First of all, in my organization, we use the SBAR communication method, which is situation, background, assessment, recommendation, everything that goes in it has to be in that format. If there's a PowerPoint that gets developed out of it, it's got a defined format. Slide number one is your title. Slide number two is your purpose. Slide number three is why you're here and what the scores are and what the burning platform is to move forward. While on this topic, what I'd like to sort of dovetail into now is your opinion. Do you believe internal security teams are missing the point when it comes to what does the business need? And what I mean by that is ultimately security teams are there to help service these goals because I I kind of feel sometimes that security teams work independently when they're actually there to service the business. I believe that a lot of times, yes, security teams are at cross purposes to the nature of the business. And ultimately, being at said cross purposes will affect your relationship with the business. It's very important to understand this is a lesson it took me several years to learn. You have to have a solution in place that meets the customer's needs before you can claim to have any kind of improvement with security. And the other point to bring across is it's not just a transactional relationship. It's got to be continual because what you have to emphasize with risk management, it's a continual process. You can't just, you're never going to be done saying you've eliminated all risks. Risks are going to change. They're going to mutate. You're going to have new ones come up and you have to be prepared to continually meet the needs of the business in light of those growing threats. Do you think people really say we have eliminated all risks? I've heard it in person too many times for me to Okay. Let's say otherwise. Got you. Okay. That's a really interesting point around some of the challenges. So for someone out there who's listening, who's potentially running a security team, what sort of advice would you give to ensure that they have their security team aware that they are servicing the business at the end of the day? What's some practical advice you can provide? The best advice I can give is you have to be the example for that team and you have to talk about the mission of the organization and you have to be able to explain the mission and values of the organization before security. And because ultimately the whole reason you're there is to protect those mission and values. That's why you're there. You're not there to practice security. You're there because the (laughs) business has a need and you're part of the risk management program to ensure that the business is able to continue operations despite adverse risks. I just laughed myself when you said practice security. Why do you think that people think that they are there to practice security? Does that just come from a behavioral thing? Is it because people haven't been leading them effectively? So they maybe misjudge the whole reason why they're there because I see it time and time again. I've worked in it. I understand 
this whole belief. I'm just keen to get your thoughts on why people would kind of think that. So if you take a look at it, I relate this back a lot to structural theory that I learned a few years ago in grad school. And the way a lot of businesses grow is that as a business grows and matures, it stratifies and a lot of business functions end up moving off into their own little world where a lot of them become isolated from the rest of the business. So through no fault of their own, you've had a lot of departments grow up and evolve where they don't really interact with the rest of the business. Mm -hmm. So the best example I can give is with the IT departments. 30 years ago in the United States, it was called data processing. They were literally off in their own little world with raised floors. They weren't really out in the business. And it's only been with the evolution of technology that they've moved out into the business. And security is relatively new, mm -hmm. but a lot of it grew up from the what we call the infrastructure teams. So originally a lot of security was part of infrastructure, really didn't have anything to do with the business. And infrastructure is one of those teams that still stayed in the data center when the business analysts were out on the floor. So I think that security is evolving, mm -hmm. but I think it's evolved at a slower pace than the rest of the IT world, which has long since grown to include customers out on the floor. And I think that's an area where security needs to improve because it lags. I, could, I think that makes a lot of sense and I can totally understand it in my own personal experience and I'm sure other people out there listening can understand that it is still a quite an immature space and hopefully over time we can close that gap. Now, Mitch, what I'd like to ask is what is your advice on how organizations should be planning for the future when it comes to security? I think the most important thing you can do is have somebody from security, at least a project manager or a manager, sitting at the table when you're making your decisions. So if you have an intake process, have security be part of the intake process. If you look at acquiring something, make sure you're looking at the risks of acquiring something and you have that on the table before you commit to making that decision. A lot of the problems you find, security I like to refer to is a character foil that shows other characteristics. So when we find something with security where there's security issues, you'll often find a number of other issues that go along with it. So perfect example I can provide is when you take a look at certain medical devices that are out on the market that don't have good security. What you end up finding out is that these organizations that don't have good security also don't have good management programs to manage a device or they don't provide good service level agreements. So we look at security as a business problem. And what we find more often than not is that organizations that have issues delivering a good secure product often have numerous other issues with effective service delivery. So we strongly believe that having security, not just at the end to put security in, as I actually once had a manager say to me when I was a consultant, we look at it as being a continual part of the process from making that initial vendor selection to onboarding, developing a management plan for the device and its eventual disposition. Do you think that's a sort of changing face now when 
incorporating security. So yes, you've got security by design and things like that, but even sort of more at the executive level, that security does need to be present there because I think, yeah, like you said, it is still an immature area. I think it hasn't always really been there. So it's kind of like, oh, like why is the security slash IT guy now getting a seat at the table? And maybe that does it doesn't feel as natural to people because you've got the CFO there, you've got all these other players in there. And now this is becoming sort of a new and emerging area that does need to be there. Do you think like over time, this will sort of be part of the furniture in terms of people sitting at these meetings? Yes, I do. And I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. It's because a lot of security issues, when you take a look at them, have a root cause of not properly managing the device or system. There was one online threat report I read from a couple of years ago that indicated 93% of all data breaches could be traced back to improper patching, not patching a system. So when you extrapolate that out, why isn't the system patched? It's because you don't have resources to manage it. Well, why doesn't the resources exist to effectively manage the system? It's because when an organization, give you an example, when they do a capital budgeting process and they put in that they want X amount of dollars to buy a system and put it in place to improve the business, I've actually seen it where a lot of organizations to get that higher percentage of return on investment to meet the goals of the organization and increase their likelihood of being selected, look at the IT and security costs as unnecessary. And I think what's ended up happening is, is that people have taken these costs, they've taken them off the budget proposals, they've assumed, well, IT can just do it, and you, which leads to completely overburdened IT departments, employee disengagement, and heavily insecure systems because people are looking to get a higher return on investment to get their solution picked. So what you end, what ends up happening when you explain this to senior leadership is you trace it back to the management problem that it really is. And you talk about resolving a management issue and a resourcing issue to make sure that you are able to assess and address risks more quickly to be able to meet business needs. So we've seen a lot with budgeting. We've seen a lot with management. And I think as organizations grow to understand that you need to effectively manage these systems to keep them secure and you just can't pick something up and have it work, then you're going to see more security people and more IT people sitting at the table collaboratively working on plans to not just bring a device in there, but main or system, but maintain that device or system through its journey and life cycle to ensure that the usage of said device or system effectively mitigates risks and meets the business needs needs. From your understanding, what is the biggest gap when it comes to companies' security planning strategies? From what I've seen after 11 years of being a CISO has been You've got to work with the business and you've got to work with infrastructure. You've got to talk to everybody to get an understanding of what everyone wants or needs to be able to put together a realistic plan that has a chance of success. And I think there's a lot that has to be a lot more improvement in project management. I think there's a lot more improvement in estimation and a lot more improvement in communication that has to be done to be able to meet all those needs and to be able to explain to senior leadership this is what needs to be done and why this is who we've spoken to and this is the research we've done. And a lot of other areas within IS have started to get, have gotten very good about what we call benchmarking and 
I haven't seen the maturity level with benchmarking yet with addressing certain types of risks that I would like to see. And also with addressing security plans, I see a lot of benchmarking on products, but not on processes or why we do something. And I think as security matures, you're going to see a lot more of that and you're going to see a lot of improvement. Why do you think people aren't benchmarking when it comes to security processes? A lot of them, honestly, don't know how. One of the paradigms I'm seeing at IT has been that IT and data processing used to be a lot of really technical people. Then a lot of other departments started hiring MBAs to run them. So to give you an example, in my last mm-hmm. job, almost the CIO and almost every single direct report to the CIO, including myself, had an MBA degree, except one person who ran technical services. Everybody mm-hmm. else had an MBA. And it's now they teach a lot more IS as part of an MBA program. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot more quantitative analysis and benchmarking is because they teach it. Meanwhile, with the masters in cybersecurity programs, they do not have that emphasis. And you don't see very many security people taking those programs. So I think there's a general lack of knowledge there. And when your job certification requires you to to have certain certifications, but not business knowledge, that ends up being a limiting factor because your security person's not speaking the same language as the CIO or the director of infrastructure or the director of decision support. And they can't articulate items in the same way they can. So you have this lack of communication and lack of knowledge that contributes heavily towards continued miscommunication. I 100% agree with you. And it's a common theme that I am speaking to people across the globe. What I'm what I'm curious about is, so you've got a security guy in there. He's trying to explain all the security stuff. Do you think the CIO is just frustrated because he just doesn't get what Joey's talking about? Um, and for some reason, Joey's is my fallback name, so it's not anyone personally. Um, do you think that they're annoyed because, like you said, there is this disconnect, like one speaking Italian and the other person speaking French? Yes, they're speaking, but they're not really understanding each other. Do you think that becomes a continuous frustrating process because Joey can't communicate to the CIO as to why they need more funding for the security practice but he doesn't really get it because he's not explaining himself enough. And then the security guy gets annoyed because he feels that he's explaining it and the CIO doesn't get it. Is that, is that sort of what you're seeing? Uh, Absolutely. That's what I'm seeing. And it took me a long time with the last CIO I worked with to build up that rapport, to get him to understand where I was coming from. And seeing things in the way of a CIO is very, very different than seeing it from the way of a security person because a CIO is going to view everything from the lens of enabling the business. And it brings me back to what I talked about with security officers. A lot of them don't understand the business. So if you can't explain items in terms of the business, you're going to lose a CIO. And you also have to explain it in terms of the initiatives and what it means to the initiatives ultimately or what they have to do. I recall one meeting in particular. I was presenting to the senior leadership team of a physician practice plan. I had one of my three bosses from my last job sitting across the table from me in a room full of 30 executives. And my boss looks at me, goes, Mitch, just tell me what to do. And that's what it came down to is the CIOs needed 
to be explained to them in terms of the business, in terms of the customers, not in terms of the technology. CIO used to be a very technical role. It has since turned into a very strategic role. And security has to understand that the CIO at one time was technical. It's now evolved to where they have a CTO or an executive director of infrastructure or VP of infrastructure handling technology for them and that their understanding and their needs are to make sure that they are that able to explain what needs to be done to the business. And to do that, security has to be able to frame what they're doing in a way to explain it to the business. Uh, This like music to my ears because something that we're helping clients do, but also I'm seeing it in my own experience of working in the industry as well. And I still do hear the frustration that security is like, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't get it. And I think there should be a responsibility put back on the security practitioners to be like, hey, like, of course these people don't get it because I may have done this for the last 15 years. Of course, the next guy over in the next department isn't necessarily going to understand what I'm talking about. So maybe it's on me to frame, like you said, my language and the discourse in which that I communicate to that person and to them to ultimately give you money or make the change or whatever it needs to be uh, because they need to look at it from an outcomes point of view. What's the outcome I'm trying to get and how do I best do that? And it's not about trying to claim how good you are technically. It's about getting the outcome and you need to be able to pivot to whatever language is required depending on the person that you're talking to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Mitch, I'd love to, I'd love to wrap up our interview, but before we do that now, I'd like to understand more about your opinion on how vendors sell in today's market. And I ask this because I've seen a few of your articles, I've seen your posts online, which would indicate that you're not entirely happy with the approach. And I'd love to get your opinion on this as I would like some of our listeners to understand where they can improve when it comes to introducing their products and services to people who potentially may be purchasing them like yourself. So first of all, let me lead off and say, I actually have a number of vendors and salespeople I love doing business with. I think there's a lot of really great ones out there. However, what I don't like seeing are a lot of the ones that take advantage of the disconnects and relationships between security and the rest of an organization and try and present items as absolutely reducing risk or being simple to use or requiring little IT involvement. So I see a lot of products out there being pushed as being the be all end all that are low risk, that'll just work. And I see a lot of advertising where I will get called up and be told, Hey Mitch, you should buy this. Gartner says we're great, or you should buy this because it'll eliminate this risk. Both of those are entirely untrue. I respect Gartner heavily as an organization. I use them all the time, but the leadoff shouldn't be we're in a magic quadrant. The leadoff should be we have something here that we think could meet your needs. So ultimately, I don't like it when they make it about them and how great they are, as opposed to trying to truly understand myself and my business or understand that my team does significant research on everything we buy before we go and put ourselves on the line with our senior leadership team. So I see just a major disconnect and I see just a lot of product being pushed 
without truly understanding customer needs or truly understanding who we are. And the other tactic I don't like is we do a lot of training with our end user community and we do a lot of communication with them about spoof caller identification, responding to emails that look suspicious. And to me, it doesn't ring true if I bring in a product or recommend a product if the initial contact was from somebody who spoofed caller ID or wow. sent me a mass email. How can I look my customers in the face and say, I recommend the product when the tactics used to sell them to me are tactics that I have to teach my workforce to avoid because responding to them could potentially lead to identity thefts or worse. And I value the relationship with my customers greatly. And I need to be honest and transparent and open with them. And I will not deal with companies that utilize those types of tactics because it means that to me that I'm not being hundred percent open with my customers and my customers that are type that will call me on that immediately. So I have a very strong sense of ethics when it comes to making sure that my customers get what they need. And I would rather deal with someone that's open and honest that understands my needs and understands how something can be a good fit rather than someone trying to push something and making it about themselves. One thing I'd like to know is I think on one of your posts at some point, there was a comment made saying like, hey, Mitch, this is all well and good. How should people be approaching you? And I think from my understanding of talking to people like yourself across the globe, they feel very bombarded by people, salespeople or business development managers who are pushing product, like you say, and they're sort of saying what we'd like to do is receive synthesized information. And if I feel the product is something I'd like to look into because it provides value. It actually talks about business outcomes. Then perhaps I personally, meaning the the CISO or whoever would like to go and approach that vendor. Do you think that's a better approach? I do. And it also comes down to making sure you have those great salespeople in place. Some of my favorite people I've learned from happen to be salespeople. And a lot of what I learned about meeting customer needs actually came from one. She works for a company called Sirius here in the United States. And She's nothing short of incredible with meeting your customer needs, but it's ultimately in the approach you take with training your salespeople, with making sure they understand it's all about the art of the relationship. And it's about making sure that you get someone to communicate their needs and you're able to, in 30 seconds, talk about how you can potentially meet someone's needs rather than what you're pushing this week. I understand exactly where your frustration comes from because I do hear it a lot of the time. So, Mitch, this has been an amazing interview. I've learned personally a lot from you, and I believe our listeners will as well. But if people would like to reach out to you, how can they find you? The primary method you can reach out to me is through my LinkedIn account or through Twitter. So my alias on both is Mitch Parker Sisso. And I will respond on both those channels. Awesome. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I think you've brought a wealth of knowledge to this interview and I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I look forward to working with you and this has been great. 
Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.